Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, it's an interesting time for the fixed income market. Let's talk bond market bears. We'll discuss the headwinds facing the bond market, including inflation and Federal Reserve policy. Plus, we'll get an outlook on interest rates and when this bond bear market might finally end. That's with our guest, Sam Lau, Portfolio Manager at DoubleLine. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are we watching for at the moment? Well, as of this moment, we're at the tail end of October and some of the big issues. Well, of course, we've got a midterm election coming up. And this week, we just had some major earning disappointments from some of the big tech companies. But you know, we're still having a pretty decent month. It's been a pretty decent week, pretty decent quarter. But that all said, the big issues still remain, and that is inflation. As inflation hasn't really peaked, when will it significantly drop? How is it going to impact interest rates? How should investors be thinking about and using fixed income? And given all of those topics, our guest today is one of the largest fixed income shops in the industry. It's going to be great to get his take. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Sam Lau is a strategist and portfolio manager at DoubleLine in Los Angeles. Sam, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Hey, hey, everyone. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, Sam, it's great to have you here. People, of course, can't see this because we can see each other on video right now, but you're you're rocking a really cool Orion t-shirt with like the VW bus from the Future Proof Conference. So given that, I know the answer to this next question is going to be really awesome. So no pressure. And that is the initiation right to the weighing machine is we need a walk-up song. We need to hear some music in our heads in the background. What music represents Sam Lau for this interview? You know, given the intro part of this segment, I was started typing across the Google looking for bond market bulls to see if that would work. But uh, in the interim, you know what I'll settle with is Led Zeppelin's uh, Rock and Roll. And, you know, at first when I was made aware of this question, I started looking up through my Spotify playlist. I was going to come up with Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song, and then I saw Rock and Roll, let that play as well, because I was looking for something that had a lot of hype, right? Because yeah. that would generally reflect the mood that I've been in and pretty much the investment team at Double Line has been in for the past few weeks. We're starting to get a little bit of excitement here. But nice. as I delved into the lyrics, you know, the first few <laughs> lines of Led Zeppelin's Rock and Rolls, it's it's been a long time since I rock and rolled. It's been a long time since I did that stroll. I and mean, that's really reflective of what we're seeing today in the bond market. So, you know, the way I would think about it, if I were to append to the lyrics there, I'd say it's been a long time since I've seen bond yields at these levels and they're looking pretty, pretty attractive. Nice. Well played. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, Sam, tell us more about you. Tell us about your background, your career and how you came to DoubleLine. Yeah. So I'm a portfolio manager at DoubleLine right now, but I joined the team and I say the team you know, led by Jeffrey Gunlock back in 2007 
And I came into that straight out of grad school. Well, actually, I started as an intern there in 2006 and then uh, got the offer before I graduated from grad school in 2007 and just transitioned straight from there. But this was back when we were at another company that was just down the street from where we're located today in downtown Los Angeles. And at that company, I worked in the non-agency mortgage-backed security space alongside Jeffrey and the broader uh, fixed income teams. And with that, I remained with the team when about 45 of us, give or take, broke out from that company and formed Double Line back in 2009. And I look forward to where we are today. And it's just, we've seen some pretty amazing growth through some pretty tough markets that we've had since that period of time. But today we're just at, I believe we're just under 300 employees and we manage roughly $100 billion in AUM. So definitely some good directional growth there in the firm. And what we do is we manage a multitude of investment strategies across several different investment vehicle offerings at the firm. Right. So yeah, you have several roles at Double Line. You're a strategist on the Fixed Income Asset Allocation Committee. You're a portfolio manager on the Strategic Commodity Strategy. And I know that's not all. And you also co-host a podcast, The Sherman Show. So tell us more about what you do at Double Line and tell us about your podcast. Yeah, yeah. So starting with the, uh, I guess, the responsibilities that I have there, I work on a team that we call the cross-asset team at Double Line, and it's where we're responsible for you know, the things that you mentioned there. It's both the actively managed multi-sector fixed income strategies that allow us to allocate across the broader fixed income universe using a blend of government-guaranteed bonds on one side of the portfolio, and then on the other, we integrate in the credit-sensitive bonds that you know give us a little bit different return profile. But through this integration, they blend together quite well to do well across the multiple scenarios there. But our cross-asset team there, we also run all of Double Line's non-fixed income offerings. And these include anything from U.S. and European equities out to U.S. REITs. You mentioned the commodity strategy and then also trend following strategies. And these non-fixed income offerings that we run here, they employ systematic quantitative methodologies that are largely rules-based. When it comes to kind of my side job, I guess you can call it, I co-host two podcasts. One of them is called The Sherman Show, where it's a podcast that comes out every other week and it's hosted by our deputy chief investment officer, Jeff Sherman. And on that podcast, we have individuals from pretty much all walks of life across the investment management industry. And it's there they come on as guests to share their ideas and how they're viewing the world today. So, you know, overall, the goal there is to keep it informal, interesting, a little bit quirky, but always informative. And then that second podcast, Monday Morning Minutes, is something that I co-host with my colleague, also a portfolio manager by the name of Jeff Mayberry, where we give a brief weekly uh, synopsis of what happened in the markets and on the macro front. And then we also open it up to listeners to submit questions that we'll tackle should they send any in, or we'll just have a topic of the week that we discuss. So pretty good insight from the Double Line team between those two podcasts. A quick question on the Minutes podcast. Is that open to the general public? And if so, how can they access that? So both of these podcasts are available at all of your favorite podcast yep. platforms by now. And the way you can find us on these is both either through the podcast platforms, you know, through Monday Morning Minutes or Sherman Show Podcast, or you can find us on the Twitter too. It's yep. D-Line Minutes and at Sherman Show Pod are the, the two Twitter handles, I think they're called. Well, I definitely know the Sherman Show. That's clearly a very popular podcast in the industry. So I just want to ask, like, what has that experience been like? You've been doing it now for five years or so. What have you learned you know, from your podcasting experience? 
Yeah, a great deal. I think you're right. I just saw the most recent one dropped, uh, I want to say yesterday, and I caught that it was the 127th episode. But some of the things I've learned is number one, you know, we're discussing this before we record this segment. It's really challenging, right, to get a quality podcast out with that type of frequency all the time. And it's really a team effort, a lot of time commitment. And it's really not just about what you hear on the podcast, but really what is involved in the research, the background research that comes before the actual recording to create that content. And then, of course, recording the show and then the post-production really just there to make us all sound better than we do in real time, right? So a big thanks to Ashley here. She's with us on this podcast. But overall, I found it to be a very rewarding experience, you know, especially with the Sherman Show podcast. We've been very fortunate to have great conversations with really high caliber guests. Yeah. So I got to ask, this is going to be a tough question. So yeah, your guest list on it's been pretty amazing. I mean, obviously a lot of the top people in the industry, but I mean, you go everywhere. You get Tony Robbins on there and stuff. So the tough question is, what are your favorite episodes? Do you have favorite episodes? You've done so many of them. You've had so many cool guests. Yeah. I mean, the ones that we had during the pandemic were really interesting just because of the challenging time that we were at, right? Initially, we would do put it in with more frequency. We went to every other week during that period of time, just so we can keep listeners out there, you know, just surprised at the situation that was going through financial markets as a whole. But I would say in terms of just overall, just every time we have Professor Robert Schiller come on, and he's been a repeat guest, he's been very generous with his time. We have a great relationship with him. He was our very first guest back in 2017. So I like it because you never quite know what you're going to get with him. He always brings a unique perspective to things, regardless of what he's talking about. He thinks about things in a different way, always makes for an interesting conversation. Just again, you don't quite know where he's going to take things. Sometimes if he just doesn't feel like answering, he just won't. You know? So I like that a lot. I don't like forced, contrived answers, right? So definitely a, a very unique thinker in our industry. You know, I do have one quick story. It's another podcast, but he one time did reprimand my table manners. So I do have that going for me, a Nobel Prize winner doing that. So he's a really nice guy, super nice. (laughs) I can completely see that. Actually, one of the things I think we were early pioneers on this thing, unfortunately, but it was probably that first podcast in 2017 where I introduced him again, the Peace Prize Nobel Laureate. I introduced him to the fist bump and he had no idea what it was, but I was a little bit sick at that time. I had a cough and I just didn't want to spread anything. And uh, so when he reached out to shake his hand, I held out my fist and he said, what are you doing? I said, this is a fist bump, Professor Schiller. You know, this way we can you know, try not to exchange too many germs, given that I might be a little bit under the weather. So he's embraced it. And now it's just a thing. You have impacted his life. That's cool. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, hey, let's talk about the markets. First, just kind of taking a look back at the year so far. It's been quite a year, really, for both stocks and bonds. So what's your take on what we've seen so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been horrific. I guess that's an easy way to explain the year. I mean, when we take a look at it from a year-to-date perspective, I'm pulling up my my sheet here. It looks like we're down about 17% plus on the S&P 500. You're down about 15% on the Bloomberg Barclays bond aggregate, which is the bond benchmark there, sometimes a little bit less familiar to people, but it's your vanilla bond index. And if you look at that from a perspective of, you know, your traditional, you know, if it exists, the 60-40 portfolio, that means, you know, investors, they are looking at their statements and seeing a year-to-date return of somewhere down in the 16% type of range. So it's definitely been a horrific experience. And I know we'll get into it a little bit more, but 
it's all been predicated on, I would say, monetary policy, fiscal policy leading into inflation. And now we're coming back around to see how monetary policy is going to impact it. But I think at least with the bond side of things, you can almost, it makes sense. It's very painful. It's the worst year-to-date performance in the U.S. bond market on record, going back to the inception of the index. But when you take a look at it, you can attribute it basically to the amount of interest rate risk that you have in the index itself and pair it with the amount of rate hikes that we've had this year. And it pretty much lays out one for one in terms of that type of negative 15% that you've seen year-to-date. So I think you know investors, when we talk to them, they do understand what's going on. You don't have that sense of panic that we really felt back in the days of the pandemic, back in you know the second quarter and the remainder of 2020 that we had in those conversations with clients at that time, as well as on the equity market side as well. So I would characterize it as horrible, but it seems like investors do have their heads wrapped around the rationale behind it. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those headwinds. So you know, again, it's inflation. I mean, that's such a driver of market movement. So what is Double Line's outlook on inflation? Yeah, inflation is real. It seems like most of the conversations I've had this year with my friends, not even people who are you know in the industry, just friends, is there's been really two consistencies. The first is disbelief about how much things cost in daily life. And the second is around health. So I guess the first one's a reflection of the sign of the times, and the other one's just the sign of my age, I guess. But you know, the rate of inflation, what we've seen today is it is slowing at the headline level as we've noticed over the last few prints. But really what is somewhat concerning is the stubbornness of the core portion of price baskets of inflation there. And the core basket is those stickier items that tend to be slower to change direction. And what's of concern there is because the core portion of both the CPI and the PCE baskets are accelerating. But I think a lot of that has to do or not a lot, but at least a good portion of it has to do with the construction of the index and how it's really not capturing real-time activity. One big component of both of those baskets, CPI and PCE, is the shelter component, which is derived of just housing-sensitive portions of the market. You either have what the primary rent is for your residence or an owner's equivalent rent, and then also the cost of shelter if you're abroad. But that shelter component is reflected on a significant lag within those inflation baskets relative to where actual housing prices are in real time. It's basically about 15 to 18 months lag to real time data that we're seeing through the housing price appreciation indices. So what we have there is the acceleration in the core baskets due to shelter that we're seeing today is really in the aftermath of that strong housing market in terms of price appreciation that we had about a year ago. So again, about 15 months lag, but I do expect to see headline inflation continue to drop lower this year. This is absent another shock in oil or food prices, but if that's the case, if we kind of maintain these levels, then you will see headline inflation drift lower. You're probably going to see it get into something in the, you know, the high sevens or high to mid sevens by year end. And then eventually, I think our forecast at double line is that it's going to be making its way down to four to five percent on a year over year basis on headline inflation by the end of next year. And that's going to, if you have that help of the deceleration in the housing component, finally trickling in also by that time. So we are of the impression that inflation is going to come down. We're probably not going to see that the one and a half to 2% average that we saw prior to this episode of four decade highs in inflation. But, you know, if it's around two to three, then I think that's acceptable to the Federal Reserve, at least. 
Yeah. You know, that 15 to 18 month lag stat, I did not know that. I mean, I knew there was a lag, but I didn't know how it was quantified. So it's pretty cool. Okay. So if it's sticky and persistently high, I mean, I think as investment people, we know that it's rolled over. And so that's a good thing. However, the news headlines are still going to be talking about high inflation and that might impact, you know, consumer expectations and that might in turn impact Federal Reserve policy. What is the outlook on Federal Reserve policy from Double Lines take? And the interesting thing is I didn't know that 15 to 18 month lag either until we got a question on the Monday morning minutes and we started digging through it. But the number comes from a report that was put out by members or researchers at the Dallas Federal Reserve. So you'd imagine that the Fed does know that it is lag and hopefully they're setting policy around that. But what has been absent during you know, a number of these press conferences is that mention that the lag that you have in that component within price basket. So it'll be interesting to see in upcoming meetings if Jerome Powell references that. And if that does become the case, perhaps that's a sign that they are going to slow down on their policy. But for certain, all eyes are going to be on this upcoming November 2nd FOMC meeting, particularly the press conference, which is set to occur this coming Wednesday. So I guess, you know, looking at it now, listeners on your podcast are probably going to have the benefit of hindsight at that meeting, which is, you know, just less than a week away. But for today, I mean, I guess I would point out the things that I'll be looking for, looking for indications of a shift in either the magnitude and or the pace of the hikes after this November 2nd meeting, because the November 2nd meeting, it does seem like it's going to be a lock for 75 basis points, at least if we were to use the interpretation of the Fed Fund's futures market, which is pricing us in right there of a pretty high probability. But right now, I mean, I think the fear that we all have is the risk of the Fed and the FOMC over-tightening through their rate hikes and sending the economy into a hard landing, what people would refer to as a policy mistake. But, you know, as recently as last Friday, we started to see hints of a policy slowdown right before this blackout period that they entered the following Saturday. But we had San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. She came out and said that now is the time to begin thinking about slowing down. But I think somewhat tongue in cheek, but then a degree of truth to it. But uh, just as if not more importantly, we saw Nick Timmerels of the Wall Street Journal, who now seems to be an unofficial Fed governor, given his insight into upcoming policy shifts. But he came out that day also and said that the December meeting could be a meeting where we do see 50 basis points versus the 75 basis points that the market had started to price in. And, you know, perhaps it gives them a chance to really think about not a wind down, but a slowing down of this policy from this aggressive 75 basis points. At this point, I believe it will be four back to back 75 basis point hikes into what could be perceived as a rate cut if you just go to 50 basis points. But uh, I'm somewhat optimistic, not really hopeful, but there is a level of optimism here that the Fed will be data dependent, as they've been saying all this time, and the likelihood that they're observing the real-time slowing of housing activity and seeing if they put that into play in the presser. So again, if it's mentioned in the upcoming press conference, then I will have a little bit better feeling about the fact that they're not ignoring the signs, just relying on the lag indicators within CPI, but instead are just looking at real-time data as well. So of course, one of the concerns with a hard landing would be driving the economy into recession. So Let's talk about that for a minute and the recession risks that people are concerned about. What's your outlook on those risks moving forward? Yeah, I think the risks are certainly there. I mean, Jim Bianco, a strategist out of Chicago that I follow both on Twitter and then also subscribe to his materials there, 
he comes out and says a lot that the Fed is the serial killer of economic growth. So it seems like that's the reputation they've had. When you take a look back in history, it's the economic hiking cycle that tends by design to slow down the economy. But the problem is they tend to overdo things and send the economy into a recession. I think there's just been maybe one, maybe two times where they've undergone a rate hike cycle where they haven't put the economy into a recession going back to the 1950s and forward. I think it's a pretty bad track record. But when you look at conventional wisdom, and if you believe the media or your friends in the saying that two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth means a recession, then perhaps we've had a recession already because, you know, in the first and second quarters of 2022, we did see um, negative quarter over quarter growth. So that conventional wisdom would say, yes, we are in a recession. But I got to say, if this is a recession, then I'll take it all day long because, you know, things are still pretty good. And consumers is still out there spending. We're still at historical lows in the unemployment rate. And, you know, the third quarter GDP estimate, the advanced estimate just turned positive. So, Things look pretty good if we really are in a recession. But unfortunately, you know, by definition, conventional wisdom is questionable, right? So to look at this, I mean, I guess we can refer to the book of record for U.S. recessions, and that's the National Bureau of Economic Research, or the acronym of NBER. And they basically, on their website, they say to forget conventional wisdom. Instead, the NBER, what they do is they look at the broader picture and not just GDP, Instead, they'll consider the depth of the weakness in economic activity. They'll look at how widespread or pervasive it is across the economy. And they'll also look at how long it lasts. To do so, they'll look at a multitude of indicators. They actually have the indicators up on their website for those who are interested. But those indicators are largely around personal income and consumption. Both parts of the labor data that comes out, both the establishment payroll data and the household unemployment data. Uh, numbers as well. But then they'll also look at industrial production, as well as wholesale and retail sales. And the good news is all six of those look pretty strong still as of right now. So based on those measures, it doesn't look like we are in a recession yet. But in particular, the one I'm paying most attention to is the labor side of things, really watching that payrolls data, really watching that employment data. And they still look strong. But given some of the early news that we're seeing out of earnings reports, and then it's just also in the media, it seems like, you know, we've all seen the news around layoffs and hiring freezes. So with that, I'm paying particular attention to the Friday jobs reports that come out once a month. So outside of that, some of the things that we look at at DoubleLine are other more leading indicators. And some of those have started flashing red. So it's about balancing all this data that we see. But when you take a look at the leading economic index, which has been a very good indicator in the past, anytime it dips negative on a year over year basis, that uh, is a recessionary signal. That one is just around the corner. And that dipped uh, two periods now. It's been negative on a year-over-year basis. But then, of course, as a bond person, my favorite is the slope of the treasury yield curve. And that's been inverted. And by inverted, I mean the differential between the yields on the 10-year part and the two-year parts of the curve. That's the one that I like to look at. That's been inverted or negative since, I want to say, July of this year. And then just this week, we had another confirmation through the signal of the differential in the yields again between the 10-year and the three-month yield. That dipped into inversion. I think today we're on the third day of this week. So that could be a confirmation of that bond curve signal that recession is coming. I think the bond market is sniffing out of the recession. That tends to be a very leading indicator as opposed to more of a coincident one. But we're probably sniffing out something in the next year or so, probably the second half of 2023.
So let's consider one more risk. Like we don't have enough already to consider, but <laughs> as a portfolio manager, how do you consider and factor in geopolitical risk when you're building portfolios? Because there's a lot of stuff going on around the world. How do you factor that stuff in? I guess the one thing you can always count on is geopolitical risk though, right? It's always present. It takes on different forms and different shapes and in different regions, I should say. But it certainly feels like 2022 has seen a significant increase materially since the pandemic for the most part. But while it's somewhat unique when you look at geopolitical risk, I mean, right now we have Russia, China, Iran, just to mention a few, right, that are going on as well as, you know, what's going on in Europe and the UK. While they can be unique and ever-changing, geopolitical risk is similar to many other risks out there that we just laid out in that in order to manage around it, you have to first work to understand the basis of that risk what the potential impact that risk can have on the portfolios. First, as a risk, that's the way it usually appears, which means that there can be negative downside. But later, you also have to think about it as a potential investment opportunity. So just watching to see how that can develop. And then in the interim, between that downside and upside opportunity, you just have to position accordingly. So that's why I say it's kind of, even though a geopolitical risk can be unique, it's similar to any other risk that we have out there. It's just thinking about the path forward from, or first recognizing and then trying to figure out the best path forward from there. So usually with that, the best case scenario is that you are going to have avoided that particular risk before it becomes material. So I guess one example you can think of is, you know, as I mentioned, Russia this year is a risk with the various sanctions and their debt basically effectively going to zero, even though that might not be what you see on paper. Just try to, you know, transact in that space. But if you've had the experience, if you've been around that particular area, then you might have been able to avoid that. You could have avoided if you paid attention back in, I want to say it was 2014 when the first time Russia invaded and, you know, you can say it next, but invaded Crimea. And the outcome there was a similar situation as we have today, you know, via the sanctions. So, you know, for us, you know, we've been avoiding that space since we already had that kind of early look back in, again, I'm going to say 2014, it might not be that exact year when the, the invasion happened. But, you know, seeing what transpired there and what the ramifications were, we've stayed out of it. But of course, you know, you're not always going to be able to avoid and identify every risk. But I think if, you know, you can understand that they can happen. So what you do is instead you spread your chips around, you diversify across sectors that zig and zag differently. And really just combining portions of your portfolio that can offset some of that risk if they were to occur and your outlook doesn't get things right. Combining government guaranteed assets with some of this credit, either through you know, corporate credit, commercial or consumer credit, or you know, emerging market credit. You combine that with government guaranteed assets, or you can also take it to the viewpoint of having US-based assets prepared and integrated with non-US assets. Then through that, you can really just create a more robust portfolio that weathers a multitude of differing scenarios, if you will. We do love diversification. Yeah, I mean, they say it's the one free meal, but then the other side is people come and say you can't eat it, right? So <laughs> That's always a classic argument. I always say people can. It's like, it's a little bit harder to conceptualize, but when people have better risk-adjusted performance, they tend to hang with those strategies longer and they tend to have better investor experiences. So they may not realize it, but they are actually eating better. With different side portfolios. I can't agree more. Yeah. Let's kind of talk about the outlook for interest rates. So it kind of wraps into how do you think the fixed income bear market is going to end? And so what is your outlook on interest rates moving forward? Yeah. So as I alluded to in the beginning of the segment, I'm actually pretty excited about the opportunities for fixed income. I mean, these are some of the most attractive outright deals that we've seen in decades. So 
It's true. You know, I started out by describing the year to date as horrific, but that's looking in the rearview mirror. You know, equities down around 20 and bonds down about 15. Bonds haven't really helped in this situation here. But as I mentioned, a lot of that can be explained, you know, just in what's transpired through the Fed hiking cycle, given this four decade high in inflation. But looking in the forward view, looking at the world ahead, I do think we're nearing the end of this Fed's hiking cycle. And if that's right, that should lend some stability to rates. So if that's the case, you know, then the road ahead, the setup, you know, based on its current setup looks quite nice. So, you know, one of the ways that we think about things in terms of positioning and managing risk is you run through various scenarios. So if you think about it here, if rates were to move up from here, meaning that the Fed's probably going to be a little bit more aggressive than the market's pricing in, at least you have the cushion of in the form of existing higher yields. You're at a better starting place than you were at the beginning of the cycle. But let's just say if the Fed does get to this kind of, you know, 475, 5% on their the upper bound in terms of where they're going to end up at the highest level with their rate hike, I think that's a big if, first of all, I'll put it out there. I'm not sure if they're going to get to that kind of 5% that's priced in. There's a lot of data that's coming out. And the Fed themselves just seems to be trying to temper down some of that um, forward-looking expectations. But let's see if you get there. Then basically you have another 40, let's call it 75 basis points in adverse rate move from the, let's call it the 4% yield that we're at today with the 10-year treasury note. And that's just, again, kind of utilizing that yield curve analysis that I talked about earlier between the three-month and the 10-year and the two-year and the 10-year. That's where I'm getting that kind of 50 to 75 basis points from here. But that is the downside risk that you have. So it seems quite limited if you believe this framework that I'm presenting here. But let's say if rates stay the same from here, then you're basically earning your 4% on treasuries. But I think the flip side of this is more probable, and that's if rates fall. Because if the economy does go into a recession next year, or if we start to see some exogenous shocks that you're talking about earlier, Rusty, from the geopolitical side, that could trigger a flight to safety trade. And with that flight to safety trade, then fixed income is poised to do very well. I mean, in that type of scenario, you could see rates falling by a percent or two pretty quickly. And that's a positive thing. That's a big tailwind there. When you think about where we started out on the 10-year, I want to say we're around 175 on the 10-year, and today we're about 4%. So if it starts to retrace back to those levels, it's quite a big tailwind to have in this position that we're at in the fixed income market. So when I look across the spectrum, though, it's not just attractive in the treasury market, but also if you're taking on some credit risk, you know, it can be quite nice as well as the outright yields are in the mid to high single digits there for investment grade rated credit. So for the first time in a while, you're really getting paid to appropriately to just take some of that risk out from the fixed income market. So that's, again, I'm going to go back to that, my uh, roll up song, which I'm still playing in my head. You know, it's been a long time <laughs> since I rock and rolled. Yeah, nice. All right, well, let's break it down just a little bit more into investment-grade bonds. And you did mention that a little bit, but if you could get your outlook on investment-grade bonds and also high-yield bonds. Yeah, yeah. So let's start out with investment-grade rated bonds. And I'm going to talk about it first from the standpoint of what most investors are probably familiar with, and that's the investment-grade rated corporate bonds. And I think it's a big piece of your passive indices, your Bloomberg aggregate there owns about, I want to say, somewhere around a third of the portfolio's investment grade corporate credit bonds there. And I think it's fine to own some of that, but I really do see it as being somewhat of a hybrid of having both interest rate risk and credit risk. 
which, you know, in and of itself, it's not that bad. But if I break it down and, and I look at the markets today and what they're offering, if I wanted to take on interest rate risk, why wouldn't I just look at the treasury market or even the agency mortgage-backed securities market to give me that pure interest rate risk? Because they are both backed, well, with the treasuries by definition, but also agency mortgage-backed securities, they're backed by the U.S. government. So they don't take on any credit risk. And when I look at agency mortgage-backed securities today, they have a higher spread. You're getting paid more of a premium over equivalent treasuries today in agency mortgage-backed securities than you are in IG corporate credit. So I think that makes it, number one, relatively attractive to the investment-grade corporate credit space. On the flip side, if I want to take some credit, then I'd rather go into areas that are true credit and have less interest rate risk. And those are areas of that can also be investment-grade rated but backed by the U.S. consumer. The U.S. consumer, you know, we've seen they still have pretty strong underlying fundamentals. The way that these investment-grade securities in the securitized space, I don't want to use too much jargon here, but I'll just refer to it as those securities that are backed by the U.S. consumer. Given the way that those bonds are structured, they do have some loss protection built into them as well. And then on top of that, the gravy is that you get a spread pickup over what you would get in the corporate market. And you can get outright yields there of somewhere around 6 to 9% while still staying in investment grade in the so-called securitized consumer parts of the uh, fixed income market. And you're taking on about half of the interest rate risk. So when you think about that 6 to 9%, especially as you get into the outer end of the range while you're in investment grade, you're getting a positive real yield today when you're stripping out inflation. So it's not necessarily, you know, something for, I guess, people who don't have the experience. You want to look for an experienced manager that can really go back to some of the things I was talking about earlier, integrating these credit sensitive securities with those government backed securities in order to provide just more positive and attractive risk and return profile than just buying, you know, a passive IG corporate credit index. When it comes to high yield, high yield is actually a high yield corporate I'm going to talk about here. High yield corporate, it's looking decent and you're actually paid well via the yield. And when you take a look at where spreads are, again, the premium that you're taking on over a risk-free yield there to basically pay you for the event of default. Right now, the spreads on these high yield corporate credit bonds have an implied default rate of somewhere around 8 to 9%. That's what you're paying on to take on some of this credit risk there. When you put it into the context of history, what this implied default rate, where does it rank relative to other default cycles that we had? Today, there's no default cycle. Things look okay. Companies have had the chance to refinance their debt in the last two years at historically low rates, and they've gone so into longer terms. But let's say if we were to look at what the yields today and the spreads are implying in terms of a default, that 8 to 9% is compared to, let's just say, the pandemic recession and the pandemic default cycle. During that period of time, high-yield corporate credit had a default rate of 6.5%. So today, we're getting a little bit more than that being priced in. So it seems fairly attractive. But then when you put it at another bound, you take a look at the previous default cycle, and that was the global financial crisis, 2007, 2008, and 2009. During that period of time, high yield corporate credit default rate got up to 10%. So that's kind of the bookends. 10% is the high, 6.5% on the lower end of the last two default cycles. Right now, today, high yield bonds are paying you somewhere in between there. Certainly, it doesn't feel like we're there. So I do feel like you know high yield corporate bonds 
you look relatively attractive right now. You're probably okay owning a little bit, but again, in that construct where I'm talking about, where you're blending it with government securities today that can offer up some flight to safety asset in case the high yield bonds don't do as well. Hey, Sam, what's your outlook on emerging market debt? Yeah. So if you look at it from a strategic position, we in our multi-sector fixed income portfolios, we do think the emerging market do deserve a strategic position in there. And a pretty healthy portion that we can see there is something like a mid to high single digit type of allocation there. What we see right now, given where we are in the U.S. and then with the understanding that emerging markets tend to be a little bit more extreme in the cycle, I think you can afford to be a patient here, but it does represent a pretty attractive opportunity on the other side of this economic contraction if we're going there when the economy starts to rebound, both from an improving growth and then also potentially a weaker dollar as another tailwind there. So while we do have strategic positions in EM debt that I mentioned earlier, we are at the lower end of our historical allocation within the range of that. So we've trimmed it down starting the end of 2021 to where we are today. And now, you know, kind of talking about how I laid out the geopolitical risks about, you know, identifying the risks and then waiting for the opportunities. We're patiently waiting right now for that opportunity to increase our waiting back to kind of more the upper end of that historical range within emerging markets. Well, Rusty mentioned earlier, you know, that many investors might be looking for ways to diversify portfolios in this market. And what's your view on diversifies like real assets or low volatility alternatives? Ah, now you're tugging on my heartstrings here, Robin. Mm -hmm. I absolutely think it's a great thing to own in your portfolios. And the challenge there is a lot of times you know, people like to look at their portfolios and sell what's down, right? Because they only want things that go up. But if you take a look at what worked this year, commodities have done quite well. So commodities as real assets. Commodities themselves, they're in a structural or they're in a supply deficit. And I do see that as a structural problem that's going to take years to reverse. I mean, we just plain and simple, we don't have enough oil and industrial metals currently. And just as importantly, in the future pipeline to basically meet the demand requirements that's going to come as, you know, everyone talks about this green energy transition. I've said in the past that the biggest irony around going to green energy is it's going to require an increased consumption of the old school fossil fuel, you know, strip mining type of industrial metals and oil to get us there. So today we're, we're already struggling to meet the supply needs in oil despite these macro headwinds. So once the economy starts gearing up again, I do see commodities getting pressured up even higher in price from where they are today in terms of when you take a look at the positive performers, commodities is one of the the two asset classes that really have that plus sign in front of it on a year-to-date basis. So it has helped you this year. That diversification has helped. The other asset class, I guess you can say, is the U.S. dollar. That has a plus sign on it. But you know, as Americans and as investors, we're mostly short the dollar relative to other assets. So that really hasn't helped as much. You know, something like commodities. But one other area that has done well this year is it's not an asset class, but it is a strategy. And that strategy is trend following, you know, having the ability to go long or short assets, utilizing a disciplined approach that would have helped investors this year had they owned it. And the commonality there, I guess, to commodities is that what you just talked about, Robin, is the fact that they do serve as a diversification to people's portfolios. And that's because they do have a low correlation to your traditional assets like bonds and equities. So this is the year where diversification really helped. But the difficulty is diversification only helps if you own them before you need them. That's the benefit of diversification. But many people just to look and, you know, again, look at what's green in their portfolio and shed whatever's red. So 
if that's the case, then, you know, at that point, they didn't own commodities until after they probably started ripping in 2020. So they might have gotten fearful and said, okay, well, I've missed it. So I'm going to sit out 2021 and again, 2022. But again, it's, you know, to benefit from diversification, you have to own it when the time is needed, not after. So I do think that, you know, maybe this year, you know, investors will start looking at the so-called non-traditional sides of the financial markets and perhaps start thinking about just owning them for times when the stock market's not going up and when the bond market's not going up, what might do well. And I think these are two areas. Again, trend following has served its purpose this year, as well as the commodity baskets. Yeah, right on. Okay, there's one more little market we haven't talked about, and that is the stock market. What is your outlook on the stock market? Yeah, so... The stock market, I'm less rosy on. It's not to say I'm negative or you know positive. I just have less clarity around there. And I think I explained the backdrop in which I'm looking at fixed income, where fixed income, I think you're near that end of the hiking cycle. If that's the case, you're probably going to have more tailwinds going into 2023 and beyond. So with that, I see the return kind of to risk profile being a little bit asymmetric there, more skewed to having upside, then you have downside with the fixed income market. And I can't make that same you know, picture. I can't form that same picture with the stock market because if I were to go out there, and I'm sure you've done the same, for every person that tells you the stock market's going to go up to 20%, you'll start nodding your head and you can understand the rationale for why they're saying that. But then on the flip side, when you see you know, someone that comes on and says, I can see it go down another 20%. And then your head starts to nod and it just makes sense. So for me right now, I can see it either way, the market going up 20% or down 20% just as easily you know, on both sides there. So when I think about that, the reward versus risk is somewhat more symmetrical. But that being said, it's always good to have a portion, a big portion of your portfolio and most of our portfolios to U.S. equities. From that, what I would think is most important is you want to look for quality. You want to look for you know, um, valuation there, whichever metric you use. I mean, we tend to look at Professor Schiller's derivation of his CAPE ratio to determine relative valuation. But the idea is, you know, given this kind of shakeout that we have, we still look for things that on a relative basis look inexpensive relative to the other cohorts. So I think sector selection becomes very important here. On top of that valuation, you want to look at, you know, companies that do have stronger balance sheets and the ability to just basically ride out some future pain if we do go into this recession. This last earnings report cycle, I think we're about halfway through. It started out pretty strong, but then just this week, you know, you started to see some weakness coming from the some of the, the growthier names, so to speak. So I do see valuation as being important in the next part of this cycle here. Yeah. Next question is, so as we've talked about fixed income, there's so much going on in fixed income. It isn't just simply about the 10-year treasury yield. So the next question is, considering this market environment and particularly, you know, investor sentiment towards fixed income, and the question is, why should I own fixed income? Do you have any suggestions on how an investment advisor might talk to investors about the fixed income markets and why they should continue to invest in them? Yeah, and that's the challenging part for all of us in this industry, right? Is talking people off the ledge, you know, for the most part. It's it's just a challenging part of our business. But I would say that the forward-looking outlook for a buy and hold investor, and I'm not talking about a tactical trader, but a buy and hold investor, it's looking quite attractive. Again, we're seeing decade high in yields. We're in a much different place than we were a year ago. These higher yields that we have today, they do provide you with that starting point of having more cushion to absorb further downside from here, which is something we really didn't have in 2021. 
I mean, just using the high yield market, corporate credit market as an example, 2021, you had yields around three, three and a half. Today, you're looking at around nine to 10%. So you do have a lot more income to help absorb some of that price volatility that you might experience. But I also, you know, as I mentioned, I do think we're near that high in this Fed rate hiking cycle. So with that, you have that starting place of more attractive yields that puts you in a much better place. This portion of the fixed income part of your portfolio, it is going to be serving as a ballast to that riskier side that comes through the equities places. And you're basically able to buy, again, I know you mentioned the 10-year treasury yield, you're buying this interest rate protection from this case if we do go into a recession at a much cheaper level than you had you know, just even six months ago, let alone 12 months ago. So I do see it as a point in time where you are going to likely see the correlation benefit of owning bonds relative to the riskier side of your portfolio come through again as the Fed kind of starts to at least slow down, if not reverse course from where they are today. Right. All right, well, let's switch gears now to some of our favorite questions on the show. And the first is, given all of the resources that you have at your professional disposal, how has this impacted how you personally invest? Ah, I think, yeah, and that's a big difference. I like that you pointed out the difference between your professional investing and your personal investing, because the personal side, you're allowed to even though you don't want to, to bring in your emotional side of things. So to the extent that I can, I guess I'm learning to put emotions aside when I invest my personal money. And a lot of that just comes from watching what I do as a fiduciary in my everyday you know, work life. So with that, I try to formulate a disciplined approach to a big portion of my personal account. You know, The largest chunk is where I'm going to manage it as if I am a fiduciary of my own money, which I guess I kind of am you know, from a different standpoint. But uh, on this personal side, that means you know, more diversification and having a true rationale for why I hold each position. But because I'm a human being, you know, I allocate a small piece. I reserve a small piece of my portfolio here. And that's where I kind of let my id loose. Let's call it my id portfolio and just satiate my basic emotional desires for those FOMO trades, right? So I call that almost my play money. But that part of the portfolio, the id portfolio, is where I guess I can brag you know, to my colleagues or friends when times are good and meaning that they work out. But that rational portfolio, that big piece of my portfolio where I'm running it as, you know, via disciplined approach, that's what I can point to when things are bad like this year, because, you know, it's a good chance that that part has outperformed. So it's just really separating the emotions, but then also understanding that you have it. So give yourself a little piece there is what I do. Just get that out. I think it's a great idea. You know, so many of us are just bombarded by information and resources, and sometimes you just need to scratch that itch. So if you just carve out that little bit, that little mad money account, it's like, it's actually pretty healthy over time, I think. I like that mad money account. I'm going to use it if you don't mind. That's fine. (laughs) So speaking of staying healthy, you know, our next question we love to ask people. So of course, in our profession, we're intellectual athletes, basically. So we have an obligation to perform at a high level. So how do you maintain your health, both physical and mental, to ensure you're performing at a high level? Well, on the physical side, I've never been much for exercise. I just don't do it. I mean, my doctor's been trying to force me to do it, and I'll do it in the fits <laughs> and spurts, but I yeah. tend to just walk away from it pretty quickly. So the physical side, I don't do much. That's exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do try to watch what I eat now, though. But uh, on the mental side, that's where I kind of excel. And it's really about doing the things you want. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the reason why we work, right? Is to be able to to do the things that we want or at least able to afford it. So for me, that means just getting out there and 
you know, a lot of times just going on my motorcycle. You know, I like taking long distance rides. It just gives me a chance to kind of clear my head because you're focusing on the road ahead and that's what you have to do. So with that, I shut everything out for the time being and you just really get into the Zen moment. That's awesome. It just helps me perform better because you know, I just come back and I just feel so much mentally refreshed from the ride itself. That's key. Absolutely. I love it. All right. So like so many of us in this field, you have been around a lot of other successful people who have helped you get to where you are today. You know, who are some of those people, including mentors that you're professionally thankful for and and what key lessons have you learned from them? Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I have been fortunate. I mean, I have mentors abound at Double Line and, you know, I'm very grateful for that. Starting with Jeff Gunlock, just about any meeting you're in with the guy, you learn something. And it's not always about what he says, but it's really about why he said it or the timing in which he says it, or just watching how he develops his thoughts. And, you know, watching it happen can be a pretty amazing learning experience, but that pretty much happens in almost every meeting that you have with the guy, you learn something, but it doesn't stop there. The team I work with, the the cross-asset team, it doesn't matter if it's the PMs, the deputy CIO, you know, the traders, the analysts, or cap markets on our team, we're constantly exchanging ideas and insights and challenging one another and just encouraging one another to be better. So definitely incredibly grateful for these people I'm working with. As for what I've learned, you know, it's one of these things where investing, you learn that you're not always going to be right. I think the important thing is to make calculated decisions to improve your chance of success. And basically at the same time, the flip side of that success is have the wisdom to know that you are going to be wrong you know, at times. And that way you have portions of your portfolio, again, that are going to benefit you in those times because you're not always going to win on your thesis. So have those ballasts in the portfolio, those offsetting positions. And I guess finally, you kind of have to, you know, since we're continuing down this notion of going from success to failure, you have to have the humility to admit that you're wrong and most importantly, just learn from it. Good stuff. All right. Well, before we let you go, just one more. And that is, do you have any recommendations for our listeners on what they should be reading or listening to? That could include books, newsletters, Twitter feeds, podcasts, whatever you're consuming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a very avid reader. I don't like doing it, but I'm forced to do it because I want to maintain current on my job. But we all get so much research from the sell side. So I do you know, read through that. Right now, as I'm looking at my desk, I see Grant's Interest Rate Observer on my desk by Jim Grant, which is also a great podcast guest for the Sherman Show, I have to say, is one of my favorites there. But that is something that I read. It comes out every two weeks or so. And I like that because, you know, too often we're inundated with just multiple research pieces from the same shop or the same individual, sometimes twice within a day, having this every two weeks that he just comes out and He's a wealth of knowledge. I mean, he's a fixed income historian, basically, I think is what he calls himself. And he applies that decades of knowledge to the current markets. So I like the fact that he only comes out two times a week. But I think more generically, I think we all need to kind of read and entertain uh, you know, more opposing points of view in our life. Don't look for pieces that confirm your viewpoint. Look for something that's going to challenge it instead. So when you seek that out, it's not so you can argue with that you know, piece or that person or that author, but it's really just to understand where that other side's coming from. Because we all have to remember there's two sides to every trade. You want to understand why a person's selling when you're buying or buying while you're selling. So just really understanding the other side. And I guess, unfortunately, today, that means both in finance and everyday life, you know, we should take that approach. 
Right. That's true. Well, this has been such a great conversation, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And tell us how can listeners stay in touch and learn more about what you're doing at Double Line? Yeah. So the good thing is there's no shortage of ways to access Double Line's thought leadership, I guess you you can say. There's the Sherman Show podcast, as I mentioned, the Money Morning Minutes podcast. You can hit us up at D-Line Minutes if you have any questions that you want us to tackle in the upcoming episodes, but also our YouTube channel. If you just look up Double Line Capital on the YouTube, you'll see we have this Channel 11 where we have Ken Chinola come out and he does that monthly. And we also have this thing called PS Perspectives where our product specialist team just gives out the latest thoughts that they're having and getting questions from investors. But then also you get a chance to see our appearances that we make outside of these kind of uh, normal situations where you know our, our thought leaders on TV or at various events. So it's a good way to access what we're thinking about here at Double Line. Robin, given all that, we need to up our game. <laughs> <laughs> we're only doing yeah. a weekly podcast. We need to do more. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, this has been awesome. I think this was an important podcast. I mean, think about it. So obviously you're very enthusiastic about the fixed income asset class. And of course, a lot of people could say, hey, everybody talks their own book, you're a fixed income manager, but to double lines credit, you guys call it as it is. I mean, if you're negative on the asset class, you say you clearly are active managers. And the fact that you have enthusiasm for fixed income right now, I think it's kind of a really important message. But I really appreciate your time today. And I'll be listening to Sermon Show. And I think I've got another Monday morning podcast I have to listen to. And again, thanks for your time on a Friday afternoon. I think it's time to get on your bike and start listening to some Led Zeppelin, you know? So get your weekend started. Sounds great. Rusty and Robin, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. It's been great. Thank you. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisors Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.